Agape Resource and Assistance Center, we provide housing and transformational support services to homeless single women, single moms, and their children that empower them to move from crisis and poverty into fulfilling, self-sustaining lives. And so we, uh, that's a big job that we have ahead of us, but we don't do it alone. We do it with communities like this and community leaders that um, we, uh, we try and connect with and we try and collaborate with. But I've been working, uh, this, this nonprofit stuff, this uh, homeless and poverty stuff is, is not my uh, first call. Uh, I'm a third career person. I was in business and accounting for a long time. So um, I actually started working in this footprint in along about uh, 2009, 2010. And ever since then, I've been watching poverty and homelessness in Plano in particular. This is where I raised my kids. And I've just been shocked at the change. And one of the measures that I watch is the free and reduced lunches in the schools, because that's a, that's a pretty reliable measure. And in 2010, when I first really started working with those in poverty and those that were homeless, homeless the measure in, in, for PISD was 14% of the children in PISD schools qualified for free and reduced lunches. And what that means is that family couldn't make more than 185% of the U.S. poverty, poverty level, which in 2010 was about $22,000. So you can see the U.S. poverty level does not mean that if you're above that level, everything's fine, and if you're below that level, you're just making it. It's, it's not that at all. $22,000 for a family of four is not enough even to exist in Collin County. And so 180% of that is, you know, let's say for math reasons, just say it's 200%. Say that's 44,000. Even that is a struggle for a family of four in Collin County. But, but what I have watched over the years is in 2010, that number was 14%. And fast forward, starting in 2012 up until now, that number has fluctuated between 30 and 31%. 31% of our children today, January 2018 up until now, 31% of our children in PISD qualify for free and reduced lunches. So that means that family doesn't make more than about uh, $38,000, $40,000 for a family of four. But what is really important to know is that's what, that's what you need to make to qualify for reduced lunches. To qualify for free lunches, then that, that level is 130% of the poverty level. So somewhere around $28,000. 27% of the children in PISD, their families, qualify for free lunches. 27%, that's 14,000 kids are at uh, or almost a level where they're at risk of homelessness. And so we together as a community, we are called to do something about that. And so I have been watching, watching that uh, population grow and trying to address and to serve that particular population uh, for quite some time. But what I have noticed recently, we've always said in Collin County, um, that the homeless that are here look very different than the homeless that live in Dallas County. And um, what I'm noticing, in particular this year, that I have seen a lot more of what you might 
consider the stereotyped homeless right here in Collin County, right here in Plano. And I'll give you a couple of examples that I've observed just in the last couple of months. And I don't know if you've seen that too, um, but what uh, I had uh, the opportunity to go pick up breakfast for a breakfast group that I was working with and stopped at Panera Bread at Park and, uh, Park and Preston. And as I was standing there talking on the phone, getting ready, waiting for my order and getting ready to go to this breakfast meeting, I noticed this, this little man. And he was, uh, had a beard and, and long hair, and uh, he had a, a shopping basket. And he was pushing the shopping basket, and he had come up, sort of up North Preston, and curled around in front of Panera Bread and had made his way over to the parking lot and was crossing the street over by McDonald's over there, and I, I watched him the whole way, uh, and he crossed the street and then just sort of stood there with his shopping basket, and he stood there for a little while and, and opened a book, which I believe was a Bible. I mean, it kind of looked like a leather-bound Bible, and he was standing there and, and reading it. And uh, I was sort of amazed by this. And then not two weeks after that, I had a friend of mine, also a pastor, give me a call. And he said that, Janet, I just, I'm finishing up a breakfast meeting at Panera Bread. And I just want to take a pause here. And he said, I'm looking out the window and there's this lady here. And she's sitting here in a wheelchair with a bunch of bags around her. And I'm sure she's homeless and I don't really know. I don't know what to do about that. And I know you're here and I thought I'd give you a call. So uh, I, I mentioned in the earlier service that I, you know, I don't know why this is happening at Panera Bread. Just as a, as a side note, one of, one of the congregation came up to me afterwards and she said, well, it's Panera Bread because Jesus is the bread of life, right? And so they're going to Panera Bread. And Panera Bread's feeding them. So anyway, that's just a side note from the earlier service. But I, I uh, talked with him and told him, if you call the, and if you need to know this, if you come across that and you know somebody that needs help, if you call the uh, non-emergency fire department, our paramedics will go out and they have a special service that helps to um, protect and house and get these people into the, into the um, assistance that they need. And then most recently, in the last couple of weeks when it was raining, I was coming home from Agape pretty late one night. It was already dark. It was pouring down rain, and I saw this lady coming from Coit down Parker, and she was pushing this very large uh, shopping basket with looked like everything she owned in it and pushing it and push it again to McDonald's and then across the street into the uh, Christ United Methodist Church parking lot and I swung around and I came I drove up to her and rolled down my window and uh, she came up to me and she goes what you know what do you what do you have and I said well I have some money here if you'd like uh, you can maybe get something to eat or use it however you want and she looked at me she goes no no oh I don't need it and she turned around and went back to her basket and kept pushing it so I'm not I'm not really you know I'm not really sure why she didn't take that I, I see that a lot though uh, those that are in that situation don't really uh don't really want to recognize that they need help, don't want to ask for help. So these are just three observations that I've had really over the last few months. And I wondered if uh, maybe you've had them too. And I, I kind of was thinking, what does, what does homelessness look like now in Collin County? Does it look any different? Should we maybe be looking for different characteristics? Should we, um, how can we identify it? Because if we can't identify it, then we can't really serve it. We can't really help it. So I thought maybe if I could get some help, uh, 
um, from our congregation here, I thought maybe we might take a look at what does homelessness look like here in Collin County. And don't worry, I'm not going to call on you. I, am, I asked for volunteers ahead of time, so I'm told that I actually have some volunteers already designated. So you don't have to worry about that. And there won't be a test over this, so don't worry about this at all. But if you, have been a de if you are a designated volunteer, if you would make your way up here as I... Um, as I continue with our, with our chat here. And that's kind of what I want to talk about is what, you know, what does, and we have a little blue line here and we have a microphone. So, come on up. Good, oh good, hello, hello, hello. There's not any right answers. So that's what I want to talk about. I just kind of want to get your idea and your impression about uh, what does homelessness look like? And I shared some examples of, of what I've seen. And I'm just going to write some characteristics up here so that we can share and talk about those later. So just give me anything you might. I'll prompt you to. So give me anything off the top of your head. What does it look like? Probably some pretty worn-out shoes. Worn-out shoes. That's a really good one. A sign. <laughs> a sign. I like that one. Maybe smoke or suffocation. Oh, good. So their their transportation is walking. Mm -hmm. Right? No transportation equals walking. Okay? Bags. Or everything they have is on them, right? They're carrying all they own. What about their hair? So usually with men, they're, um, they've got a lot of hair, like the beard, the long hair. Long hair, not, maybe not kept, beard. What about their clothes? We haven't talked about their clothes. Dirty. Maybe dirty clothes. Worn. Right. Maybe ragged. Right. What about uh, what about their friends? Friends? Not many friends. Clump together. Oh, camping, that's good. Clump together. Those are good. They live on the road. Yeah, we hear that. We get a lot of the homeless about a month ago and they have their their mattresses on the sidewalk. They don't have somewhere to stay. anywhere to stay, to sleep, right? Not like a shelter or a house. What about education? Are they educated? Don't know. Don't know. Some, Some are educated. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so uh, mental illness, addiction, dirty clothes, signs, not many friends, clumped together. Those are good. Single moms. Those are good. Any thoughts? Any other thoughts? All right, so, yeah? I was just going to say, I wouldn't be surprised now if some more families, uh, educated people who have lost jobs and are living in a car or don't have family, they can, that can help them. Mm-hmm. So, families... they don't have a support system, right? Right? All right, so work with me just a minute, okay? These are all great, and I see all of these. Work with me for just a minute. Let me, let me just point out a couple of them in particular, all right? All right, so let me talk about this one and this one. Carry all they have. Educated. Long hair, beard, dirty clothes, signs, I'm going to put signs, uh, not many friends, clump together, camp together, live on the road. Let me talk about those in particular. Let me talk about it. We suggest that that's what we've just described. What do you think? Signs, I love the signs. Yeah, that was kind of a play on words, but signs and miracles, yeah. So, yes, we have a certain impression and a, a perception of what a homeless person looks like, but you know what? Jesus was homeless as well. And uh, just to kind of correlate this to what I'm seeing in Collin County, 75% of the folks in, that are homeless that are seeking shelter from a Collin County shelter are single moms with children, many of them young children. Uh, families are living in cars or anywhere else they can find a little bit of shelter. Addiction and mental illness. This is uh, a huge and significant problem. It has not really been that big of a problem uh, that is presenting in Collin County in the past. This was very big in Dallas. We're seeing this much, much more, and there's not treatment. There's not treatment for mental illness, and so therefore they are on, they are on the street more and more and more. Well, thank you guys for, for helping me with this little demonstration. I appreciate it very much. So Jesus was, in fact, homeless. And there's a, a scripture, that one of the ones that has been selected for us today, 
I've selected it to remind us that as, as Paul was going from church to church um, and, and building churches in his ministry, and he was also, uh, I don't know if you know this, he was also raising money for taking a collection for those families that were oppressed and were hungry and were homeless in Jerusalem. And so uh, he was explaining this in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8. And one of the ways he was reminding people of their need to be part of the solution for those that were less fortunate is he, he was reminding them that, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich might become rich. And we know uh, as Christians, we know and we celebrate that the resurrection changes everything. It changes everything. It changes our hope. It changes our future. It changes our life. But one thing that we cannot forget is Jesus was here for three years before the resurrection, teaching us how to live and teaching us how to treat our neighbors, and teaching us how God wanted us to be merciful and share all that we had, and that God would always provide everything that we needed. And he taught, he taught us in ways that were a model, a model to us. You know, he lived on the road. He lived carrying everything he had. He lived persecuted. He lived um, without a bed, you know, uh, there's uh, the verse in, in Luke, and, and my um, choice of the title for, my, for the scripture here is he was, he was on his way back to Jerusalem after having been identified by Peter as the Messiah. So people were wanting to follow him, and one of the things, uh, a man comes to him and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he reminds us, you don't need those worldly possessions to do what it is God would have us do. But it's important. It's important to have a home. It's important to have food. It's important to have um, the ability to take care of your family, and particularly your children. So children who grow up in poverty, that uh, if they are in poverty for more than half of their childhood, by the time they are 35, 45% of those will still be in poverty. And if those children are young in age, if they are five to six years old and they've spent more than half of their life in poverty, then they have not developed, physically developed, the great uh, brain matter in their brain has not developed. And once you pass that developmental stage, you can't grow new grain, gray brain matter. And by, by the time they become adults, they will be at a disadvantage when you compare that to someone who hasn't had that uh, adverse childhood experiences. So we are all called to do something about it, do something about the homelessness and the poverty that are in our individual communities. And, and Jesus tells us the stories. You've heard them all. I want to pick one in particular, and that's the story in Luke. He is uh, walking with his disciples uh, down the Jericho Road, and they have just left Jericho. And one of the scribes comes up to him, and he, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees at that point in time are trying to identify different things that Jesus does so that they can persecute him, which is a whole 
another story we can talk about later. But in particular, this one case, a scribe comes up to him and, and says in uh, Luke 10, which is in your bulletin, on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus and said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, What is written in the law and how do you read it? What is written and how do you read it? Two different questions. And the scribe answers him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now the scribe, wanting to justify himself, asked Jesus one more question. And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And so Jesus answers him by telling this parable. You all know it, the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan. But he tells this parable. He said, once there was this man who was traveling the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, this is a very desolate place. And uh, there's um, cliffs. I mean, this is a desert, and there's cliffs, and there's caves, and there's lots of robbers that tend to hide in those caves. So you, t you would not necessarily travel this road by yourself. But this particular man was going from Jericho to Jerusalem, and a band of robbers did actually attack him, and they stripped him of all of his clothes, and they took all of his possessions, and they beat him, and they left him for dead along the side of the road. Not long after that, a priest is walking along the road, and he sees this man on the side of the road. But a priest in that time, if he touched someone that was injured or hurt or unclean, then he himself would be unclean. So this priest elected not to go to the aid of this person, and he walked on. A little while after that, a Levite so you remember the Levites were, Aaron was a Levite from the house of Levi, and those were identified as the, the priests of the temple. So a Levite was also walking down this same road, and he saw the man left for dead on the side. And he also, knowing that if he touched him, he would be unclean, and he would not be able to serve in the temple until he had gone through the ritualistic cleaning um, process. And then along came a Samaritan. If you'll remember, the Samaritans were looked upon as outcasts by the Jews. They were not looked upon as part of the God's chosen people, as part of the covenant of Abraham. Um, and they, were not, they did not associate with the Samaritans, and they um, would not sit down and eat, would not touch, would not talk. And so they were, they, were, they were considered as unclean. But this Samaritan is walking down the road. And he's actually riding on a donkey. And he stops and he sees the man on the side of the road that's injured. And he gets off his donkey and he goes to the man and he helps him. And he cleanses his wounds with oil and wine. And he puts him on his donkey and he takes him to a village and he pulls out a couple of denarius and pays the innkeeper there to take care of the man. And he says, not only that, I'll come back in a couple of days, and if it takes you more than this that I'm giving you to take care of this man, I'll pay that too. I'll pay that too. 
And so the innkeeper takes care of the, the wounded man and nurses him back to health and gives him shelter and gives him food and gives him healing. And the Samaritan goes upon his business. So it didn't really interfere with his life too much, but he stopped and he took the opportunity and he took the time to help someone in need. And so this, Jesus finishes telling this story and he looks at the scribe and he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? And the scribe says to Jesus, the one who showed him mercy. Mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. And that's what we're supposed to do. Go and do likewise. It's not going to take too much out of our lives to help those in need. It's not going to take too much out of our lives to help provide shelter or food or child care or tutoring or mentoring to change lives forever, for eternity. It's not, it's not going to take too much. I'm, I'm telling you guys this because you already do it. You are already changing lives eternally. You're outrun homeless. You've done for years and years. Your attention to focusing on those that are hurting and those that are without hope and those that are homeless, you're changing lives eternally. And I want to tell you one story about a life that you have specifically changed eternally. When Agape was really very young, we, we, we're only five years old next month, so we're not very old now. So we were really very young. This is like when we were a year old, maybe. We were 100% volunteer for the first two years of our, of our young lives, and um, we, we didn't have very many housing uh, units, and so uh, we didn't have a whole lot of women, and we didn't have a whole lot of space, and we didn't have any professional staff to speak of. Everything was volunteer. And so we, were, um, we got this call. I got this call one uh, it was in the fall, one fall day, about this time of year, actually. And it was from a Plano police officer, and she was a crime victim's uh, uh, advocate. And she called me wanting to find a place for a particular uh, individual that she was trying to help. Now, this particular individual was a, was a woman, and she had made her way to a local, this is in Plano, made her way to a local hospital emergency room, at which point uh, when she was brought in, they realized that she had been beaten and uh, harmed so brutally that she had lost half the blood in her body. And this woman, they later found out, um, had, was trying to escape sex trafficking. And the, they called the police, the emergency room called the police, and that's how this crime victim's advocate came to be involved in this particular case. And this young woman, in uh, uh, her interviews and her desires, she decided that she wanted to do whatever she could to leave her trafficker. And that is a big step right there, because they, there's uh, a lot of uh, brainwashing and a lot of control and things that we could go into um, where they have such control over those individuals, she decided she wanted to try and leave. And so this crime victim advocate was calling us to try and find a place. We were so young and we had so few staff that we didn't have, we literally didn't have any space. So I had, I had told the police officer, I d really, I just don't think 
that we're going to be able to help you. Uh, I believe that we would do more harm than good. She needs special care. She needs special counseling. And she needs special security that we just don't have. And so I said, but, but please keep me, you know, please keep me informed. And so um, later the next week, the crime victim's police officer called me back, still searching for a place for this woman to go. She was being released from the hospital, and the officer was in tears telling me that if, if she didn't find a place for her to go and she went back on the street, that he would kill her. He would kill her because she had tried to escape. And the police officers, it's my experience, don't typically cry. So when she started to cry, then I started to cry, and then, you know, I finally said, well, God's obviously brought her <laughs> to us for a reason, so we will figure it out, and we did. Uh, the, the short story is we took her in, and as we were interviewing her, I will not ever, ever forget the first time I met her. She sat on the couch next to the police officer, who was the only person she would talk to, curled up in a fetal position, and not even looking, pulling her hair over her eyes, not looking at us, not talking to us, totally withdrawn. And so over the next several months, our counselors began to work with her, began to work in play therapy and in art therapy, very intensive, and we collaborated with another agency that deals with sex trafficking, trauma-based care. We, the police officer was also on our team. So we put a whole team of people around her. And over time, I would visit with her about her faith. I came to find out that she actually was a believer, but her beliefs were so skewed because of her experience that it was heartbreaking. I remember in talking with her, uh, she, would, she would tell me about, um, you know, I'd ask her about what she thought about God, and she would tell me, well, you know, I believe, uh, I, I believe there is a God. I believe that he believes that some people have good lives and some people don't, and I'm just one of those that doesn't. And I don't believe he could ever forgive me for all the, th the things that I've done. So over time, we, we, get, we began to um, see, a, see that change a little bit. We could see through her artwork that she was beginning to uh, open up and beginning to blossom. She was with us about six months, and her trafficker found her. And so in her, to speak, keep her safe and our occupants safe, we found another place for her out of state. Well, I've been in contact with her ever since then. And one of the things that uh, impacted her life the most was while she was with us, I was encouraging her to reach out in her faith and to begin to maybe find a church, maybe find a church home that she could belong to. So she began to call around to different churches and... Um, I, she found one, and she, she said, I called, and they were so friendly over the phone, and I would really like to go, and would you go with me? And I said, sure, I'll be happy to go with you. I don't know anything about that church, but I'd be happy to go. And, I, and friends, I want to tell you that was this church, LifePoint Church. And so we sat back along this middle row, way back in the back. She didn't want to talk to anybody, but the music soothed her soul, and the friendship that was, she felt when she came into the church made her feel like a human, a person, and not an object. And that actually began to, that one visit began to change how she viewed herself, how she viewed herself as a daughter of God. And that, I don't remember the message, sorry, George, it, yeah, I'm sure it was memorable, but I don't remember what it was. <laughs> but um, 
something in that message opened her heart to redemption and forgiveness and moved her along that path. And so when we, when we had to move her to a different state and I was staying in contact with her, I would tell her all the time, God loves you. God uh, encourages you to be, be part of the community of faith. So wherever it is you go, please find a, a, a community of faith. So that was probably three years ago. And what was her barrier was not only her physical and emotional scars that she was trying to overcome, but also she had been abducted, abducted into trafficking at the age of 14 or 15. So she didn't have any employable skills. So that in order to take care of herself and to be safe on, and not go back to the streets, she had to get a job. Well, nobody would hire her. This was conversations over several years that we would have. I said, I really wish you could come back here because we could send you to school. We could send you to trade school. We could help you get a job. We could help you get safe housing. And she said, I just can't come back. He will find me. I cannot come back. And so we would brainstorm about how this, you know, how this could possibly work. Where, where could she go? And we would look for other agencies and we couldn't find any. So this conversation would, would, you know, ebb and flow over the last several years until finally this August, I get this text message from her and it's, it's like, well, I did something and I'm sort of excited and I'm sort of scared and I don't know how it's going to go, but I enrolled in college and I went to the college, and when I enrolled, I applied for a grant, and so I got this grant, and the grant's going to pay for my college, and the grant's going to pay for an apartment, so I'll be safe, and I can lock the door, and, and I'm going to study, and I'm going to go and do what you suggested so that I can get a job, and I was speechless. I wasn't even sure that she had finished high school, and here she is taking the initiative to go and enroll in college so that she can stay safe. So I was so excited. We, uh, um, another staff person who knew her back in the day, we got on an airplane and flew to where she is and took a whole bunch of stuff and settled her in her new apartment, her first ever in her whole life apartment ever. So cool. And uh, got her new sheet, you know, all that cool stuff, sheets and food and dishes and all that stuff. And we just had the best time that day. And it came to be time for us to go which was really sad. The day went much too fast for us. And just hearing her voice and seeing her talk and her mannerisms and her confidence and her self-esteem, it was like she was a different person. And she was a different person. But I remember we were getting ready to go, and we're, we're all huggy and, you know, smoochy, and we get to the door, and she goes, well, can we pray? And we just went, of course we can. So we got down on our knees and we were holding hands together and I began to pray and I come to the end of my prayer and I'm about to say amen and she tugs on my hand and whispers, can I, can I add something? Can I add something to this? I said, sure. And so she's praying and thanking God that we were able to come and see her on that day and how very special it was to have friends that still believed in her. And then she said, it's one of the most amazing things in the world. Thank you, God, for not giving up on me. And isn't that what we all say? Thank you, God, for not giving up on me. So what you do as a church changes
And for that, I am grateful. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Amazing and merciful God, thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for providing the courage that we need. Thank you for abundantly blessing us so that we can bless others. Thank you for allowing us to share your word and your mercy and your grace so that all of those who we touch may be surrounded by you and live abundantly and eternally. Thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.